All right, good morning. Welcome to Denton North uh, for our third or fourth, I can't, I don't really remember, outside service. Beautiful morning. Some of you need to come fill out this spot up here. Plenty of room. It's beautiful. Thanks, Beck. Guys don't know how lonely I get uh, up here by myself. It's like being in a circle and everyone's left space on either side of you. You're wondering, what have I done? Do I really smell that bad? Yeah, that's true. Biblical. Okay, well, I've got a couple of announcements this morning before we take off. The first one uh, is that the Metro Auto Fundraiser starts tomorrow. If you don't know anything about the Metro Auto Ministry, that is a ministry that came from our church and basically does free and low-income car repairs for people all across the Dallas area, all right? And also, we do no-interest financing for people for cars, and so uh, just to give you an idea, we did some, I don't even, I can't even keep track anymore in a year. Uh, we have so many people, but I do have the number somewhere. I think we did over like 315 repairs last year, uh, have over 20 cars financed. Uh, some of our biggest referral organizations um, are Denton County Friends of the Family, Grace Like Rain, Vision Ministries, uh, Children's Advocacy Center. We just get a lot of, of people calling us on behalf of their clients so that we can take care of their car needs. So that's just something that's really special that's come out of our church, kind of our mission. And so be thinking about that. One of the biggest ways you can help uh, if you're a poor college student or uh, poor recent graduate is actually sharing that on Facebook to your rich friends uh, who are rich and care about community needs, okay? So our goal this year is 18,000. We have 18,000 matching funds um, already pledged. So yeah, so we'll go until we make it. And it usually takes us about two or three weeks. Be looking for that on Facebook tomorrow. We also have a new website this year, which is really, really great so that people can actually sign up uh, on the website, give on the website, uh, that thing. So, uh, so you can so metroautoministry.com, metroautoministry.org, and you can lead people directly there. Uh, one of the things that we're going to also do this year is try to move people to do more online giving monthly. Uh, so if that's something that you're willing or able to do, most of us know kind of how to do that with focus, apprenticeship, and things like that. Um, please get on and uh, whatever your gift is, it's doubled. So if you give $5, you've given 10 great thing. Okay, so that's Metro Auto. If you have any questions, certainly let us know about that. Second is our leadership conference that's coming up in a month. Okay, and we do this every year. This is for anybody in our church who considers themselves a leader in any way, shape, or form. We're going to do a half day this year because it's all uh, going to be Zoom and live stream. So we're just going to do a half day. And we're talking this year about organizational culture. And what does it look like to really build a kingdom culture uh, in the church? And, and uh, So we're going to do that a couple different ways. We really want you, if you feel comfortable, to get together with people in like a physical environment uh, of less than, you know, 10, or if it's, you know, more than 10 in sort of like a spread out spot, and watch the live stream together. So if it's a small group, if it's your Chula group, um, whatever it is, we'd really love for you to do that because there's going to be more interaction. When we do the discussion times throughout the day, you'll actually be able to discuss with someone in, fa in person, face-to-face. -face. But if you can't do that and you want to be on your own sort of individual, you can still access the leadership conference through Zoom. All right, that's October 24th, I think. I'm terrible with dates. I think that's right. Saturday, it's like a 9 to 12.30, 12.45 thing. All right? So please make it a, a plan to be there. For our leaders, this is like one of those three events a year 
that, uh, you know, we really want you to be at. And we've already done the other two through Zoom, and some of you didn't come, so this one make a priority to be there. If you're not coming, we'll probably end up calling you one-to-one. -one. Make sure you're coming. Check you off a list. Uh, yeah. Cool. Great. Questions about any of those announcements? Metro Auto, Leadership Conference. No, great. All right, well, the talk today is going to be split into two completely random things, okay? Or at least separate things. On the one hand, we're going to talk a little bit about worship this morning as the worship team has met now twice and has been thinking through how to uh, kind of rethink our ministry worship culture, okay? And then the other half is going to be our normal series, Basics of Christianity, How to Deal or How Did Jesus Deal with Opposition, okay? So we'll just transition that uh, here in a moment. Since we started up here in 2010, in my mind, I always wanted to do something fairly different with worship. Fairly different, meaning different than the churches that I had been to, which is not that many churches. Um, one, because we're in a music town. Two, because worship is not, singing worship is not something that excites me very much. I almost never want to do it, okay? And so a selfish part of me really wanted to, to sort of rethink worship. And in the last 10 years, I have been largely unsuccessful at doing that. And part of the reason I think is because we haven't dug down into the actual philosophy and culture of our worship as a church. We've just sort of tried to kind of do something different in terms of practices and add some different things. And so one of the things I'm most excited about this year is our worship team that gets together and just talks about our worship as a church and as individuals. And so I want to present a couple of things that have come out of those meetings to you so that you are prepared for some of the things in, in the following weeks we're going to do, but also so that you can be thinking about this. Uh, obviously, we can't adopt a church philosophy culture if you guys don't buy into it. We're not going to be able to force that down, a few of us on the worship team. If you don't buy into it, you don't like it, you don't think it really fits with your understanding of what worship should be, then it's obviously not going to work. So let me give you a couple thoughts and hopefully this will both help you think about our communal worship and your individual worship throughout the week. All right? So, number one, I think that if you are around our ministry for a long period of time, you know that we do a fairly good job of deepening relationships and friendships uh, and caring about people around us, but sometimes don't do such a good job of really enabling people to connect with God on their own. And that's one of the reasons why worship, I think, has become such an important um, drum to beat around here is because we need to rebalance our ability to love each other, but also to love God and pursue him individually and on our own and communally. And we don't have very many, I think, philosophies and organizational culture really built around that like we do around our relationships and our friendships and things like that. And so that's at least... I think maybe the, the major reason why we're sort of rethinking this, talking about it. Uh, for a long time, I've defined worship, and that's kind of all I've had is just a definition in my mind, which is putting God in his rightful place. Okay, anything that we do that's a, a, either a response to, an initiation of putting God in his rightful place, where he belongs, which means where I belong, where the world belongs, a lot of things follow from that. That is simply worship. Okay, that's the definition that we're going to operate off of and have been, just haven't really built much else around that. So we're going to rethink this. 
We're not just going to try to change stuff, uh, add a whole bunch of things to do. We want to slowly ease into what does it look like as a church? Many of us have both liturgical backgrounds, free-form backgrounds, no worship backgrounds. Uh, for us to just really dive into this, think about something, and uh, with the Spirit, uh, sort of create something or at least reinvigorate what it is that we're already doing. Okay? So let me give you a few goals, uh, maybe philosophies for this, and then I'm going to give you an activity to practice this week, uh, and then, uh, yeah. We can ask questions if you want about this. So number one, uh, our first goal is that what we do in this worship time would inform and encourage and challenge your worship throughout the week. Okay, worship is important in a moment and in a time, but think about if we treated preaching like we treat worship. You just come on Sunday morning, hear a sermon, don't pay any attention to it, and then go throughout your week. Oh yeah, that's what we already do in Protestant churches. Uh, how can we treat worship like that? We come, we do something, and then throughout the week, it doesn't inform really anything that we do in our own individual life. But we know that preaching ought not be that way, but we allow worship to be that way, as if it's just an event that's not really informing how we connect with God, see the world, think about the things around us. And so one of our major goals for our worship team is to inform, encourage, enable, equip, we use whatever fancy business word you want to use, you to worship throughout your week, both on an individual level and smaller groups, making sense of what does it really mean to worship beyond just this little singing thing that some of you love and some of you hate that we do on Sunday mornings. Okay? So that's one in terms of a goal, or you could even call it a philosophy. Because one of the problems that we have is that for many of us, our definition of worship is either too broad, it can incorporate like anything, I smiled at someone today. I worshiped. It's like, okay, yeah, I mean, probably we could talk about that as being a tiny part of worship. Or our worship understanding is so specific, it's, well, if I sing good songs that I like, if it's the liturgy that includes the sacraments, if it's the free-form singing, I have a sense of who God is. But what we're trying to do is expand for some of us and specify for some of us what worship actually entails so that we have some definition of it, some understanding of what does it mean to really put God in his rightful place? How do I do that and think about worship in ways that are really more healthy than the ways that I'm thinking about them now? Cool? That's number one. Goal one. The second seems maybe a little strange to you, but we want to rethink corporate worship in terms of historical and global movements of worship, okay? So rethink, what does it mean to be gathered here together doing this thing together? Humans since, I don't know, as long as we have record, have been worshiping stuff. And they get together and they do some stuff and it's usually a lot more participatory than what our stuff is. And it has signs and symbols and rituals and meanings and what does it look like for us to regain some of that as we're corporately together worshiping together? Beyond just all of us individually singing a song, sometimes into it, sometimes not into it. What does it look like for us to gather together corporately in this setting and actually worship God in a real time, a real moment? What does that mean? Okay? And so those are our two goals for thinking through this worship stuff. How do we inform how you worship throughout the week? Really define it, think about it, practice it. Uh, and uh, how do we rethink this corporate 
worship thing, but particularly from the perspective of looking at historical movements and global movements right now currently, all right? And so we're going to try to present some things to you both historically and things going on globally that will help challenge how you think about what's possible for how we worship. Okay, cool. So here's an activity I want you to do this week. And um, this is an activity that we've done or are doing right now, but it'll be helpful if you do it as well. It's pretty simple. And like I said, we're not, our goal here is not to just come up with a whole bunch of activities and bounce around from one week to the next, but we do want you to have something you can be working on doing, thinking that maybe practice some of these ideas. So I want you to find something meaningful to you. Okay, anything really. Uh, something meaningful to you. And by meaningful, we're sort of going for, you know, meaningful in terms of maybe how you think about God, how you hear God. Uh, it doesn't have to be directly that way. If you need to unpack it a little bit to figure it out, that's great. So uh, something meaningful to you, and we want you to answer these three questions, all right? Number one, what does this tell you about the heart of God? We use that uh, question all the time in terms of reading scripture, thinking about sermons. So what does this tell you about the heart of God? Two, what may God be saying to you through this thing? And three, and possibly, um, not more importantly, but at least equally importantly, respond to what you've just done. Respond. However you feel the need to respond to God, respond to knowing something about his heart, respond to hearing something that he needs to speak to you. And this can be a fairly short activity for you. And uh, we're going to try to um, maybe do that a couple weeks all together uh, just to sort of try out some of the things that we're talking about, some of the things that we're presenting. So something meaningful to you, particularly meaningful in regard to, uh, to God and how you approach him. What does this tell you about the heart of God? What might be God saying? What, what is God saying to you? And then uh, respond. And you're welcome to do this together. If you've got a couple people, maybe an LTG this week or something, and that you want to do this activity in there, small group at the beginning, whatever. Feel free to, uh, to do that. Now, I will say one thing, and I'm going to call this the, a pro tip, as it comes from Grant. And uh, Grant is someone I've looked toward more recently in terms of leadership and guidance for worship stuff. Not that he thinks he's any better, but he's thinking about it a lot, and at least that's better than what I've been doing. So here's a pro tip for your worship for this week, particularly for this activity. I want you to think in terms of these three words, which one of them is already think. Think, will, and feel. Think, will, and feel. As we were talking in our worship uh, team, we believe that these are three pretty important components of worship. Not that you would expect that you would have all of these in one moment or even in one week, but that when you look at the range of your worship of God, all three of these should be evident. And some of us have tendencies towards one or the other. And so a part of worship and putting God in his rightful place is challenging what's lacking in those other two. So if I'm very cerebral when I approach God and I think about him, I think about ideas, but I find myself not really feeling his presence, or I find myself only doing things that come easy to me. I'm not actually willing myself in obedience to him, regardless of whether I feel it or not, because I trust that he is who he is, whether I feel it or not. Then I've got a lacking area there. 
And so I want you to think through those three kind of aspects, think, will, and then feel, as being a, a kind of making up the full uh, balance, uh, you know, perspective on worship. Okay? I know I just gave you a whole lot of stuff. I'm sorry about that. That's how my brain works. It's just easier to kind of get it all out there. So questions about what we're trying to do. There shouldn't be a whole lot of specific questions at this point. Maybe the biggest question is when are we going to start singing again? Um, that's your question. You just missed everything I said. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, singing's great. It would be fun. We'll probably try it out in a couple weeks. Um, you know, it's just going to be awkward and weird, and that's fine. That's no big deal. It's also just a lot more setup, and so we've been trying to kind of do this bare bones. Uh, so we'll see. We'll get it back, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll be there. No big deal. Okay. Maybe I'll just start singing up here, maybe one song a week, uh, if you guys are cool with that. No? All right, great. Questions about worship stuff? Are we good? All right, here we go. How did Jesus deal with opposition? That's actually going to be pretty short. We don't need to hear more messages on how Jesus dealt with opposition. Many of us know it and know what we ought to be doing. We simply just don't obey it. So we need to be challenged more on following Jesus and how to deal with opposition. And that's why, or at least that's the excuse I'm going with on why we're not going to talk about this a lot this morning, okay? In terms of informing and giving you lots of information and data, uh, you know how to do this, I think, most of you. We just simply don't practice it and obey it because it's hard to do. We know how Jesus treated the people who he came across who had opposition to him because he constantly had opposition everywhere he went from both within uh, his following his circle and the disciples to without to the furthest reaches of culture, he had opposition everywhere he went. And so the scripture is chock full of examples of how Jesus dealt with opposition. I'll give you three examples. But again, I think these are things that we need to begin challenging ourselves to actually practice, pull out of the mind category of, yeah, we know how to act. And then assess and question whether or not we're actually acting out of those things we already know to be true. And as we're coming into an election season, uh, there's probably no better time to talk about this. How did Jesus deal with opposition? And how are we going to do in actually following his example this year and how we deal with opposition as well? So I've got three things. And then, uh, yeah, you can ask some questions at the end. Number one, Jesus was not a jerk but he also wasn't a people pleaser, okay? He wasn't a jerk, but he wasn't a people pleaser. It's interesting, jerks like me can find plenty of examples of jerkish things that Jesus says. And maybe if you're a people pleaser, you can find plenty of examples of really nice things he said to people, really sweet, gentle ways. But the truth of the matter is, at least in how we're gonna shallowly define what being a jerk is, Jesus was not a jerk and he wasn't a people pleaser. Didn't have to go to these two extremes and didn't in order to deal with uh, the opposition that he faced. Nathan, we have a chair over in the truck if you want to get one. Okay. So he wasn't a jerk, uh, but he also wasn't a, a people pleaser. He was bold and confident, yet humble. We talked about this randomly, actually, at the cohort yesterday. I had no idea what Brandon and Aaron were going to talk to our cohort about, and this is the topic they chose, is what does it look like to be both self-confident and humble in leading people? So it looked like to balance actually having self-confidence and of course, self-confidence, healthy self-confidence ultimately comes from a confidence in God. 
and him putting spirit inside of us and him moving in us and him putting around people we need to, to have around us and knowing things that we need to know. What does it look like to really be someone who's both self-confident and humble? And so we talked about that. We talked about it more in the context of getting feedback. Here we're talking about it more in the context of, um, of actually dealing with opposition. I loved Leslie's last week uh, as Troy and Chelsea, our two resident cynics, called Jesus fan fiction, um, Leslie's story of Martha and Mary. I loved that. That was really great. I thought it was really helpful. I think some of you kind of missed the idea, maybe, because it was a little bit of a challenging idea. What does it look like to think through Jesus and his life? So I just finished Dune. So that's probably the last time I'll reference it for a while. But in Dune, there's this thing called the, I can never really say it, Ben Gesserit Way. And these women are trained in this deep understanding of how to read human body language and uh, even uh, physical language about you know, when someone's going to attack, when they're not. They can even sometimes speak a word and influence what someone decides. Okay, why am I using that? It's sort of a weird thing. It's because often we don't think through just the kind of challenges and struggles Jesus would have had as a person. We tend to project just simply our own issues our, and we sort of stereotype Jesus was a symbolic figure that sometimes was sad, sometimes was mad. No, it goes way deeper than that. He felt emotion as it was meant to feel emotion in the deepest forms and senses of it. He knew people before he even really talked to them or interacted with them. Knew what their motives were, what they were thinking. How hard would it have been to be around people who he knew what they thought of him before he even interacted with them. You talk about dealing with opposition. The people closest to him on their best days had all kinds of questions in their minds and their movements and their activities on whether or not this guy was legit or not. And Jesus still spent his time with them. That was what, what Les was ultimately talking about was being able to take this idea of how Jesus lived and really dive into it to think about some of the challenges that Jesus himself would have had faced, having experienced life in a human form, but, but while at the same time being God. Well, the Mary and Martha passage is an awesome example of this, of Jesus not being a jerk, but also not being a people pleaser <laughs> and kind of knowing how to get to the bottom of, of that issue, and, but, but doing it in a humble way and, uh, and not in the, I caught you, aha, you're actually a bad person kind of way. So Jesus wasn't a jerk, but he wasn't a people pleaser. I want to focus more on these last two, because I think they're uh, maybe a little bit more pertinent, maybe more difficult. He de dealt head on with issues, but while often leading with the heart. So he dealt head on with issues, but while often leading with the heart. I. Uh, posted on one of our uh, elder pastor's Facebook pages about a month ago, kind of an angry little rant. No, not really, not angry rant. It was a sarcastic question. That was a sarcastic statement. Whatever it was, okay? Definitely I laughed as I posted it and felt very in the right. Uh, it got deleted pretty quickly after that, and I've shared this story, I think, a little bit. And I got a call the next morning from one of our cohorts, it was like, basically started off the sentence with, I find you very um, intimidating, but I'm just going to tell you, I think you were wrong in what you did last night. And I was like, what did I do? I do a lot of things. I just pick one that I, was, I did wrong. Let's figure out, what does he know? Um, 
And he said, you know, the way you responded. I think you responded out of truth, but not at all out of a sense of unity or love. And man, that statement, well, first of all, I was like, yeah, I don't think so. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> uh, but within an hour, I had already called, apologized both to him and the person I posted it on and to the people who actually commented on the, uh, the page because he was just right. You know, I was right in what I was saying, okay? You know, my head was there. I knew the truth. But I had no sense of love or unity for this person to be able to handle that in a variety of other ways. I just wanted to do it quick and look good in the moment. Jesus didn't do that with people. He dealt head on with issues, but while often leading from the heart. He cared about the people he was talking with, and two, and cared more about them and how truth would come across than just simply laying it out there and telling them to deal with it. And of course, I mean, that's how God is going to deal with us. He has to deal with us like that. That's more effective way obviously. But it's important to see that in Jesus throughout his ministry. One of my favorite examples, probably because I would have been so angry at this moment, is when Jesus is in front of Pilate, and Pilate is asking him about truth and about who he is. Jesus takes the time, uh, knowing this is a sham kangaroo court, a silly you know, deal, and basically says, who has told you about who I am? Now, people have interpreted that question differently. I think he's actually giving Pilate an opportunity to have a conversation about who he is. Of course, Pilate rejects him. uh, But in that moment, I think you see Jesus ultimately opening up the door in a very dark moment for him. And a very, there's just no excuse. Uh, You know, he could have been angry, mad, at least not said anything. But but, but loves this person so much, cares about him at least so much, maybe not in the moment. his really sweetsy love kind of feelings, uh, to actually open the door, um, to lead with his heart and actually ask this person if what he's asking is about uh, something he's curious about or if something he's just heard from someone else. So he dealt head on, but he led with the heart. The last one is, I think, the hardest one to understand, uh, and it actually uses the word understand. But let's unpack it just a, a little bit. So he sought to understand people so that he could be understood. We use that axiom around here a little bit, uh, understand so you can be understood. I don't remember actually how it goes. I never do. Seek for all, all of you like, you know, teacher's pets from the front row, you know, grade A students. Oh, I know it is. Seek first to understand. And then... I'm just kidding. I'm, yes, it's a good one. So what is it actually again now that I made fun of you? Seek first to understand, not to be understood. That's just like a King James way of saying it. I'm going to go with what I said. Uh, understand so you can be understood. <laughs> ye, ye all people seek to understand. Um, so Jesus sought to understand people uh, and model what understanding looked like so they could understand back. Now, I read this really stupid book a long time ago. It's like, I don't know, 180 million ways to interact with people around you. <laughs> it, it wasn't that. Yellow, and it was like all these little nuggets of wisdom. And one of the ones I remember always is like, you know, if you answer the phone a certain way, people will match how you sound on the phone. So if like some, I had this guy that I, a good friend of mine in college, who always answered the phone as if this was the most depressing moment of his life, and I was calling him this. And it was so hard to like talk to him out of that because you know it was just so sad to hear him answer the phone. Um, well, we kind of do that 
And this is sort of what is happening, I think, in this understand, uh, understood idea, is if we model understanding first, it's pretty normal for someone to reciprocate modeling that back. And vice versa, if we model judgment first, pretty normal for someone, even at their best moment, to model judgment back. So we sought to understand John 7, which I forgot my Bible. It's over in my truck. Um, it's also kind of long and I think a little bit hard to make sense of as we're reading it. So I'll just give you the short version. Um, Jesus' brothers are sort of starting to kind of question whether he is who he says he is. So they're going up to this feast in John 7, and they're like, yeah, you know, hey, if you really want people to uh, be impressed with you, know who you are, you ought to come to the feast and do what you've been doing. And Jesus says, my time's not yet come. Um, you know, for you, any time is good. Uh, for me, um, you know, I'm not going. Then Jesus secretly goes uh, after his brothers have gone and begins teaching in this really specific place and goes on to say that people are really amazed at his teaching and uh, amazed at what he's doing. And, and Jesus says, listen, you know, you're only going to know whether my teaching has come from God is if you actually do it, pay attention to it. And then this sort of challenges people. They begin to question, okay, isn't this guy from Nazareth? Don't we know his parents? Isn't he this person, that person, whatever? And I think in this moment, you get this idea that Jesus allowed himself, and try to hang with me for a moment, because this is going to be a weird idea, allowed himself to be judged before judging other people. Even what we talked about a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus didn't come to the world to be judged, excuse me, to judge. (laughs) There we go, got that one. But to give life to the world. Jesus, I think, modeled his life and interactions with people after saying, look, I'm an open book, judge me. And then judging after that, rather than judging people first and then um, sort of showing himself up as who he was. He constantly went around asking people what they thought of him, not in sort of like a, <laughs> I don't know, you know, I really want to please everybody. But his life was out there, it was forward, people could judge for themselves what exactly he believed and what he was doing. Another way of saying it, he sort of took on the burden of being judged before judging. Now, of course, Jesus is perfect. And so the judgments, uh, he didn't have to worry about being judged wrong, but he certainly had to be worried about being misjudged, which happened everywhere he went. People in their failed judgment of who he was and interpretation of who he was got the wrong message. And I know that Jesus must have deep down felt very concerned about you know, I'm doing what I need to be doing and people still aren't hearing what they need to hear. But knowing at the end of the day that that was their choice and not uh, his, wasn't going to make those choices for him. So he took on the burdens of being judged or burden of being judged before judging other people. You know, we hide in judgment a lot because we don't trust that we'll pass. (laughs) But we can make sure that others don't pass when we judge first. We hide in judgment a lot. We're not really for sure that we're going to pass judgment, uh, pass that process, but we're very quick to judge others first. And I want to say that more than anything else during this time, um, some of you are very careful with telling people about your ideas, offering your ideas. We almost get this backwards Christian way of, well, I'm going to ask a lot of questions first and see what their ideas are and then sort of hide all my ideas in the process and just pretend like I'm half agreeing. 
What does it look like to turn that around, though, in our conversations with people? Tell them what you believe, to tell them what you think. Throw yourself out there. <laughs> Let them judge you before you've judged the things that they're saying. Takes on the burden of being judged in terms of his, how he dealt with his opposition. He did this, again, so that he could show how this process worked, what it looked like to be a fair judge of someone, to allow people to judge my ideas and ultimately be okay that they don't agree exactly with what I think. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. And so uh, um, I don't know. I would just throw that in there as sort of a thought for political conversations moving forward. What does that look like practically? I think it looks practically like not hiding behind the questions that we're asking people, like I just said. Asking a lot of inquisitive questions, but not being honest with people with what we actually believe and think. And then dealing with the consequences and the burden of being judged by somebody else. Or just simply talking to the people who really won't pass judgment on us because they're already in the exact same position we're in. So I think there's a lot that you could unpack there. Um, if you wanted to. And I, I really encourage you to go back and read John 7. Because in this passage, this is really what he's doing, is he's kind of thinking about judgment and talking about judgment and the way that he sees himself as opening up to tell people pretty plainly who he is and what he wants to, to accomplish and then let them judge for themselves. And that's all I got for today. I told you it was going to be pretty short. Two different sections, two different separate things. I imagine you have more questions on this maybe. If you have some now, great, we'll answer them. If you don't, we'll move on. We don't have communion today, unfortunately, so um, I think Leslie said she uh, got real hungry this week and just went for it. Uh, a busy week for her, so um, sorry about that. So just, yes, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, we hide in judgment, meaning that we hide sort of in that we're doing the judging makes us feel sort of above judgment, but also hiding from their judgment by not being clear of what we believe, what we think, that kind of thing. Yes. So this is a tricky idea, I definitely. Um, the idea of, of putting out what you believe to people about stuff, I, I don't mean like you're, you've made it really clear, like, hey, here's all the things I believe, now it's your turn to talk. <laughs> what I'm really ultimately saying is that uh, you know, what Jesus did in um, how he dealt with opposition is he made it really clear with where he was at and then had conversations on those grounds. What we often do uh, is sort of the opposite. We try our best to figure out where someone else is at and then pretty unintentionally or intentionally judge their position without giving them an opportunity to really kind of know where we're at. And I don't think Jesus did that. I think that was a very honest way of dealing with opposition. Um, you can either let people know in sort of a grand scheme of things, which is most of us, when we're letting people know what we believe, we're doing it to like nobody, <laughs> sort of just the vacuum of social media space. And uh, it's not very helpful in terms of letting people judge. But Jesus just kind of didn't do that. Uh, he let himself out there uh, for people to know and to know what he was thinking and doing. I'm just kind of challenging this insincere political conversation that some of us have. Um, that, uh, that seeks to just ask a lot of questions. And uh, remember, the whole point of this one is seek to understand, not be understood. It sounds counterintuitive to the idea of being judged first. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I just have to think about it, I guess. <laughs>
I'm just messing with you. Now, the whole uh, idea of seek to be or seek to understand uh, before you're uh, understood is that you actually know where this person is coming from and what they're talking about. Well, we can't always do that unless we're honest uh, first with where we're at and where what we're talking about. Because how many conversations have we had with people politically where I mean, I was just at I should probably say this actually, but I was at an event yesterday, <laughs> large gathering, and I was one of only. Maybe, I don't know, 2 or 3% of people in the entire thing that was wearing a mask? Very scary. Uh, but somehow in this very conservative room, I had a lot of conservative conversations, stuff where I was just mentally assenting to things that I don't agree with at all. <laughs> what am I going to do? Stop in the middle of this stranger I just met and be like, yeah, actually, I don't believe that. Yeah, that's the point. You're having conversations where you're actually challenging ideas and thinking. You don't really understand someone uh, when you're just listening to what they're saying. Okay, that's not really an understanding. That's just a, being a quiet sounding board and passing the torch. Now, sometimes that's fine. If it's a quick conversation and you do not want to engage with this person who's had three gross uh, chilled uh, cups of wine. Who chills wine? What's wrong with y'all? It's a red. You don't do that. Bad idea. Another pro tip. You got two pro tips today. Um, then, uh, then you're not really having an, a conversation. Uh, you're not really understanding each other one way or the other. A big part of understanding um, is sometimes being able to be the first person out there that says, hey, we're having a genuine conversation now. This isn't just a conversation where we're going to pass back and forth ideas and none of us really agree with it. <laughs> so I can accept understanding you. It's sort of a, a really lazy way of doing this understanding thing. Letting someone talk at you, things that you don't agree with is not understanding. You're ignoring, which is appropriate sometimes for quick conversation. I didn't think this was such a challenging idea, but I guess it is I, because it's a... Kind of an opposite, right? It's like a, a, a paradoxical contradiction type thing. Sorry, I didn't realize that. Yes, you and the mask and the gla- eyeglasses. Absolutely. And I actually said one word, which wasn't helpful in clarifying it. So basically Grant's saying when, people, when Jesus is allowing people to judge him, he's perfect, right? So he knows that for their good, they judge him. But there's still an ethic there in the New Testament that really calls forth from us the same thing. Think about the idea of let people see what good lives you have, you know, and let them respond to the gospel. But that is an important point, that Jesus himself is perfect, and therefore, you know, he was going into these situations knowing that it would be good for people to judge him. But, and that's what I mentioned earlier. Uh, but I don't think that that lets us off the hook any when it comes to allowing people to judge our lives. Guys, as Christians, we've really gotten this judgment thing pretty backwards, which isn't Weird, because the New Testament got it backwards a lot, or New Testament churches. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, right? Very important passage where Paul's saying, why are you guys judging people outside the church? Let God do that. Judge each other. (laughs) You've got someone that just remarried their, like, stepmom, and y'all are happy about how much grace you have? Are you insane? Not even pagans, not even crazy people do that weird stuff. So judge each other, okay? And as people of God, we ought to be okay with being judged. Now, this is not to say I'm okay with whatever people believe to be true about me, and I don't care anymore, and I am above, you know, everybody's judgment of me. Now, that's the wrong way of looking at that. But we care about people judging our lives. You've signed up as a Christian to be under the microscope particularly in the day and age we are. And if you don't know that, what are you doing being a Christian? You've signed up for it. It's a part of it. 
And we can overreact by saying everybody's against me and this whole world is trying to oppress me or saying this is an opportunity for people to get a better idea of who we are and then we're under the microscope. We want to be under the microscope. At least bring some attention to who God is and who he can be. And we invite that, I think, in, uh, in dealing with people who oppose us. Okay? Really, it's no different than the idea of going walking with someone a mile after they've asked you for two. It's being able to take on the burden of opposition and turn it around back to someone for someone's good. And for the worst forms of opposition, the worst forms of oppression in our societies, it's often uh, those people who take that and then renew it in another direction that's for the good is the stuff that most is amazing to us. The revenge folks, yeah, we love it. The folks that don't do different, don't do anything different and just live and survive, sure. But the folks that are able to take that oppression like our God is and reverse it for the good of the very people, uh, that stuff is just kills us every time, right? Just something innate to us that we know that's a good thing. Yeah, one more. Okay. <laughs> that's like another sermon. The question is ultimately, how do we turn this for their good? I might just stop talking so that I don't have to answer more questions based on the things that I'm saying. Remember how this was not about we need more teaching on how to do this? We need more obeying on actually doing what we know with dealing with opposition. So how do we turn those things for the good uh, of the very people who oppress us? As the most simple example is when you lead an alternative lifestyle, it releases people from the tit for tat back and forth that goes along with survival. It's forgiveness. What does forgiveness ultimately do? It empowers people to be released and go on living their life because they've been released from that very thing. I mean, that's just, there's, God releases us from these natural survival responses and takes us into another world where even the worst of things don't have to dictate how we move forward and how we live and how we think about ourselves. That's all I'm going to say about that one. You got to think about that more on your own. I was, did a very good job of ending early today and then all these questions, man. Thinking questions. Turn these practical sermons into these thoughtful. Guys, this next month, just practice some of these things. If the biggest one you've got right now is don't be a jerk, then just start there. That's me for a, with a lot of stuff. It really is. Do not deal well with opposition at all, even a little bit. The ironic that I'm talking about these things that like be judged. Come on. The idea is like high and mighty. No, I'm not even close to there, all right, and how I deal with opposition. Let me be real clear. Uh, said that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I get, the, I get to be the one up here just, you know, uh, judging you by telling you good things, not, not offering myself to be judged. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jet out. God, will you do something amazing in this terrible election year, just terrible overall year? something that's going to just blow our minds, has something to do with how your people deal with the opposition that they have. Please just use us as an opportunity to shine light, be glory amidst the chaos and darkness. Thank you for what you've already done and so many positive and wonderful things that are going on in our society. Um, but help us, at least as a church, to be people who deal with opposition the way that Jesus did that we can release people from the burden of the back and forth and the uh, programmatic responses and really deeply engage 
we can be okay with people not choosing what we've chosen and still loving them anyway. You're awesome, God. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.